Hello. Hello. You know, 30 seconds before you called me, I did a Skype test call and it worked fine. And I didn't change anything. And then you called me and I couldn't hear you. And I was sure the problem was with you because I had just done a Skype test call. And then I tried, I, after it didn't work, I tried another Skype test call and, and then I knew the problem was me. And so what I did was I unplugged my microphone and I plugged it back in. Of, of course. Um, the uh, Control-Alt-Delete. Uh, of the podcasting uh, world. Yeah, of the podcasting world. I, uh, well, I, I, I was uh, stressing that it was on my end, um, so I uh, also did that and checked all my <laughs> everything. And in fact, after our first failed call, I just um, restarted my computer. <laughs> well, I was, that was what I was going to do next. But, uh, but we figured it out. We're here. We, we are. You know, I'm, uh, I'm, 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 like, I'm kind of stressing out because it's, it's, kind of it's kind of a busy day today. And I've not helped you at all today. No, <laughs> I've not helped you at all. I um, we we had planned. Well, there was a plan for a podcast last night, which I, I maybe this is uh, um, the the biggest thing for me is I didn't check my schedule at all on the weekend. Like I didn't even think, oh, hey, maybe Don and I are recording a podcast. And then I didn't uh, plan on getting my children in bed, and told Danny I'd make dinner, and uh, and then it was late. And then and then of course I couldn't get to my office in time today um, because I didn't bring my microphone or my headphones home. Oh, so, yeah. well, and so so there was no way you were going to do a podcast last night. No, no, there was there was really no way I could do it. I could have done it with my old plan. Um, but they suck so bad. Yeah. So, the, so then I got up uh, this morning and figured I would come to my office, which, uh, turns out, uh, people, um, that go to an office on a sort of a regular schedule, create traffic in a <sighs> thing called rush hour. So annoying. I've, 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 I've only heard of it. And then I, uh, <laughs> then I lived it today. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. And you'd figure, you know, you'd figure like, Every almost every day, you are not there, not contributing to rush hour. So on the off chance, right? It only seems fair on the off chance when you have to go during rush hour. Everybody else should just stay home because you've done your part, right? You've stayed out of the way, and exactly. and then when you need like a little bit of free freeway, you know, you know, highway, you know, uh, flow, uh, you can't get it. Just help a brother out. Yeah. Just, uh, just give me, give me a chance here. Uh, um, yeah, uh, it, it was, uh, uh, it, it was stressful. Um, and, and then I thought as I was sitting in traffic, I was like, oh, it's probably like this every day. Uh, it is. <laughs> just, it is. Never, it's a, so that would suck. Yeah. Uh, for, yeah. <laughs> I, imagine, I, imagine if we had real jobs. I can't. I literally cannot imagine that. I don't. Well, it's, it scares me. And, and speak, speaking of stress and managing time and people that don't have real jobs, yes. I, am, I am so excited that, that, that there's going to be help for people like you and me and other people at uh, the annual meeting this year. So um, I have been working... Um, over last week and over the weekend with uh, a, a special surprise in honor of my presidency at, at the IAFP annual meeting. And, and this is, uh, as I was explaining to uh, um, our, our, uh, 
our, our, our who, someone who's going to be our special guest at IAFP <laughs> this year. Um, there's there's about one percent of all the people at the meeting that are going to be really psyched to hear that he's coming. And then I, I sat and I thought and I did some more logarithm math in my head and I said, well, you know, actually it's about point one percent. Right, right. There's and, like but, three people that'll be at the annual meeting that are that are that are super psyched to hear that uh, um, um, Merlin Mann, who is uh, I don't want to call him a productivity guru because he's not he's not a, a guru of anything, but uh, but a, a guy who has uh, done a tremendous job uh, talking to people about how to manage email and and manage their time. Um, and who, who's made a career out of it is going to be uh, coming to uh, Indianapolis to uh, to talk with us about about these important skills. Um, and and it's it's a bit of like I, you know, what, what would the cliche be here? It's a bit of a coup, Don, that <laughs> that you're able to pull this off. Um, it, it is I mean, it is a bit of a coup. I had to kill the rest of the board. Yeah, and they're and they're and they're dead and in jail. Exactly, and. Uh, <laughs> And after this, you will have to abdicate the throne. Right, and flee the country. And flee the country. For, um, for Cardiff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Which would be, which is lovely. It uh, is, especially this time of year. Exactly. Um, but but it's, uh, it, it's pretty awesome. I, you know, it's not often, after just spending three days in, in a meeting that, um, that wasn't the most productive for me. I, I, and because mainly because a lot of it was predictable, I like that there's a level of unpredictability to, um, this year's IAFP and, and, um, it's, uh, it's really exciting. I, I texted you, you, you and I have been texting back and forth. Um, and I, and I texted you something, um, about this, that I really do appreciate make, you making this happen like a well, lot. Well, thank because you. Because it's really cool. Well, thank you. And and I and like I said, I think there's about 0.1% of the people who are going to be at the meeting that are really excited about it. And then probably another 1% that are just really excited that the 0.1% is excited, right? So um, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. It's going to be, it's, good. It's gonna be great. Um, and uh, I, I don't know if it was your influence um, – uh, because you had been talking uh, with Merlin, but uh, I, I did as I was uh, flying home from Lincoln, Nebraska, listening to Back to Work episode like 174 or something. Um, here, here I am sitting on a plane, and out of nowhere, I hear a uh, a name check of uh, you know Professor Doctor uh, Donald Schaffner, PhD, uh, <laughs> reminded me of something as Merlin said this week. Uh, please, please, let's call him by his, his appropriate title, Bachelor Man. Bachelor man, of course, of course. Oh, so yeah, so um, yeah, and no, uh, it's 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 cool to get it's cool to get name checked. And as I was explaining to you, um, I um, I was talking with Merlin actually while I was at a, uh, a two and a half day meeting that was moderately productive. Um, uh, that I was talking with, I had stepped out during lunch to do a little bit of, uh, or, you know, organization and planning and brainstorming on this thing. And I was talking, I was, you know, talking about food safety because that's what we do at the IAFP meeting. And I mentioned FISMA and, and Merlin said, Oh, is that the thing that uh, bad bats posted on Tumblr about? And I'm like, I'm not up to speed on my Tumblr, so I'm I'm going to say I'm not sure. And then it turns out it wasn't. What 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 Mike had posted about was um, 
the uh, CDC working more closely together with USDA FSIS, which is not which is not related to uh, FISMA, but is um, kind of um, well, it's, I guess it's sort of tangential. It's certainly related to food safety, but it's and it's kind of sort of about you know all of these pieces you know working better together. But uh, anyway, so uh, it's been it's been it's been a week of name checks, Ben. Yeah, it, well, and uh, the, I like I like it when there's the, a week of name checks. It's it, it makes me feel like we're um, like a one degree of separation from from the real nerds of the world. <laughs> of course, I tell my wife um, how excited I was when I was listening to Back to Work and I heard your name. And <laughs> she, you was, she was like, "Yeah, she was, she's." Um, I think she's in the uh, the ninety nine percenters. And said, "Have uh, have a good time with your nerd party uh, at IAFP." And I said, "I will." You have no idea. I'm going to be so excited. It, it's going to be an amazing nerd party. It will be. It will be indeed. Um, so, so you got you you have a tight day today, and I uh, well, I've put us a little behind schedule. So hopefully uh, this um, this is okay for you. Yeah. No, um, I, I just have a hard stop uh, at ten o'clock because I got to be on the call oh. uh, on a call talking to somebody else. But we 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 have time to to do lots of stuff, and I've done, of course. Um, hours, literally hours and hours, li- <laughs> literally, literally minutes and minutes of, of preparing for this uh, for this call. So um, it should it should be a good show. We actually do have uh, a bunch of stuff to talk about, um, and so uh, we should get right to it. Let's do it. Yeah, and uh, as I mentioned in I think episode uh, sixty one and sixty two, um, there would be a time where I really slack off and don't prepare at all, and that time is today. So you have uh, 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 clearly uh, done your done your work on uh, pulling some of this stuff together. I do have a couple of tidbits uh, that I'll add in, um, but we have some follow up. Uh, we've got some follow up from uh, episode sixty one, uh, where we uh, mentioned uh, something about uh, restaurant inspection, referring to uh, rats uh, being in a restaurant in Calgary, and our good friend uh, Michelle Daniluk. Um, MDD, as she's known in the uh, show notes, uh, calls us out for saying there are rats in Alberta, and she provides us a link to uh, about this. And in fact, this goes back. I, I knew a little bit about this because there had been some coverage on this a couple of years ago about um, the potential that the rat rat eradication had had a breakdown in some part of Alberta. And I can't remember exactly where it was, but I got into this, like, you know, you know, as you do this deep diving of the internet and mining and searching and be like, wait a second, there's no rats in, uh, in Alberta. It's that's like the Pied Piper is showed up there. And, uh, and like the, uh, mythical, uh, situation of no snakes in New Zealand, um, but anyway, or, or Ireland, or Ireland, or I think I think you're thinking of the um, they don't have potatoes in Ireland. I'm 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 pretty sure they they don't have snakes either, thanks to St. Patrick's. So we 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 learned thanks to St. Patrick's Day. We, I learned about that as a kid. It must be true. It must be true. It must be true. Um, and and Hamlin, the the Pied Piper of Hamlin, and uh, you know, I you know where you know where they do have snakes, Don. In my mm. backyard. In my backyard. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I wish St. Patrick would come, you know, check it out uh, and see what he can do. Because as I go out and grill at night, like mm. I was doing last night after when, when I wasn't doing a podcast, um, I am reminded constantly of a story of my uh, uh, my wife's 
a friend's husband who last year got bit by a copperhead as he was taking the garbage out and spent two weeks in the hospital. Holy crap. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. Crazy. Suddenly, North Carolina does not seem quite as attractive as New Jersey. (laughs) There's no snakes in my backyard. There, not, uh, not not any poisonous ones anyway. Don, are there snakes wearing leisure, leisure shoot suits in your backyard? <laughs> yes. they, they're sitting outside of a pizza spot. Yeah, they're smoking. They're, they're rolling dice. <laughs> yeah, this is uh, America, that's, man. That's, that's great. Um, <laughs> oh, speaking of The Wire, uh, I, did, I did finish. <laughs> Sorry. It's uh, only, uh, only 12 minutes in. And I, I, yeah. fin- I, finished, uh, I finished The Wire uh, for the second time. So, uh, so great. Uh, so excellent. great, and I was I was actually close to Baltimore. I was down in uh, um, wherever we were, wherever I was for that meeting in Maryland, uh, close to close to Baltimore, um, Bethesda, I think. Yes, Bethesda, and uh, and watching The Wire and and loving it. Oh, it's so good. Um, okay, we, this is another. <laughs> just a, I, these aren't non sequiturs because it's all just linked. This it's it's all connected work. in our heads. Yeah. So I saw our friend, our, our good friend Manan Sharma, mm. uh, in, in at this meeting in uh, in Lincoln, Nebraska, uh, where we talked about uh, uh, sugar talks and producing E. coli. And my focus is around beef, but he does a lot of Aztec and produce. And uh, so it was this cool um, get together. But um, something came up. Oh, well, he mentioned that he lives very close to Baltimore and was a little bit myth that when I was in Baltimore a while ago, I didn't um, come by and see him. And I said to him that I was only in Baltimore for the morning, gave a talk and then flew home. And, and really all I know about Baltimore is, is what I've seen on the wire. And then I asked him about the wire and I was like, kind of said, oh, you know, Schaffner really loves the wire. <laughs> and, and his response was, yeah, I know. He mentions it about every podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, Manon, 12 minutes in, the first uh, mention of, uh, of of The Wire. Um, but it's hey, a great but, show. But, but uh, also, a shout out to Manon Sharma. Yeah. It was, <laughs> from uh, from uh, Beltsville, Maryland, close Belt- to Baltimore. Yeah, who's a uh, closet <laughs> podcast listener, says he listens to about every other podcast. Um, well, he'll probably is, miss this one. He'll probably miss this one. But will, you know what? We'll call him out. We'll, uh, we'll put him in the show notes and mention Manon Sharma and where he lives. And, and I'm sure <laughs> the privacy people will love that. Yeah, well, I, he, li- he lives at 1030 Baltimore Avenue, building 201 Bark East, <laughs> room 100B, in case you're stalking him. Oh, that's yeah. – that's, I mean, I don't, I don't think he actually lives there. I think that's where he works. But anyway. What? And very, just down the road from Hamsterdam. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, so we should talk. We should talk more about rats, though, because this is rats. this is this is quite interesting. So, um, and I did not realize this. And I, you know, I mean, I don't know. Um, it seems a. It seems a. I mean, there is an actual web page with an actual graph or a figure which shows the the progress of rats um, across Canada, and they kind of stop at the Alberta border. Um, <laughs> But you know the last the last data point is nine. I can't read this. It's nineteen fifty five. It looks like the uh, the Canadians were holding the line there. The Albertans were holding the line, and I'm. I, you know, I, as you know, Ben, I've been to Canada, and uh, you know, I have a passable standard American knowledge of the. The size of Canada, and that seems like an awfully long border <laughs> to, to keep the rats free. And I know that 
especially the further north you go, there aren't as many Canadians. And so, I don't know, it seems to me like uh, unless there's a kind of a big uh, Great Wall of China, Great Wall of Alberta. Uh, the, great, the Great Rat Wall. Rat Wall of Alberta. I'm, uh, I'm not convinced that the rats would be kept out. Um, I, uh, that would uh, um, not surprise me. Uh, Canada and, and the U.S. do share the world's longest undefended border. It's well, for now. For now, for now. <laughs> it does surprise me that Alberta has um, uh, hundreds of miles of uh, rat-defended border. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I digress. Um, and, and, and Ben, did you know, did you know that they recently found, uh, well, recently as in uh, <laughs> uh, earlier last year, a dead rat in the community of New Brighton? I, I, that's, God, that's I in, did know that. I did know <laughs> that's that. in Calgary. It's in Calgary. Which is um, in Canada. Yeah, so so here's the, um, the 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 awesome part about this rat. So we we haven't sort of read from from this, but it's about Norwegian rats, um, which I think was on Rubber Soul, um, and they're one of the most destructive creatures known to man. <laughs> I'm sorry, um, they destroy and contaminate untold quantities of food, and through their tunneling activities, undermine the foundations of buildings, sewer, and water lines in city streets. Rats also weaken and deface buildings by gnawing holes through floors. I mean, just just horrible, horrible rats um, from Norway. Um, and they carried the flea that spread plague throughout Europe. Um, so the people of, of Alberta uh, decided a while ago to um, to take rats out of their equation. Um, and uh, according to the Wikipedia page, since the early 1950s, the government of Alberta has operated a rat control program, which has been so successful that only isolated incidents of wild rat sightings are reported. And it's usually if rats are arriving in the province aboard trucks or rail. In 2006, Alberta Agriculture reported zero findings of wild rats. The only rat interceptions have been domesticated rats that have been seized from their owners. Except, of course... <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute. People are not allowed to have rats as pets? I, I, I'm not... What kind of a country is that? It's, it's a police state. It's un-American, man. It is un-American. <laughs> it is literally un-American. They'll get my rat when they pry it from my cold, dead cold hands, Ben. <laughs> Um, so, so Michelle, Michelle points out that, that yes, there is a, an errat program or a rat eradication program, but in 2009, this is according to Wikipedia. And as we all know, Wikipedia never is never wrong. Uh, several rats were found and captured in small pockets in Southern Alberta. It, all Don, it's exactly why I wear uh, pants with big pockets. <laughs> uh, I do not want rats in my pockets. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, un, I'm unclear why, why it is the, the Alberta government are going through people's small talk. <laughs> um, but that put Alberta's rat-free status in, status in jeopardy. And, and this one, this is going to surprise uh, MDD, uh, I think, a colony of rats was subsequently a colony. I mean, we're talking here Roanoke Island. Uh, was subsequently found in a landfill near Medicine Hat in 2012 and then again in 2014. So the rats are slowly coming back. Yeah. Uh, which is uh, which is a shame for that rat-free status. Um, I've I've flown you've, – you've been to Alberta. Um, I've not uh, – and, and I've, I've been there a couple times. I was there in uh, 
in March of this year, flew into uh, into Edmonton, uh, went and saw a hockey game at the uh, Rexall Center, uh, home of the Edmonton Oilers, which uh, in the 1980s dominated um, hockey with the great one, uh, Wayne Gretzky. Wayne Gretzky. I, even, even I know Wayne Gretzky. It, 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 even, yes. Even you, know he, you, know, he, you know why he was good, man? Because he <laughs> skated to where the puck would be. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> one of my favorite quotes of all time. Well, he, uh, they didn't check my pockets when I went in, I, you know, even not even, a, a, a there wasn't a rat detector or a metal detector at the North, at the, uh, Rexall place, formerly the Northlands. Oh, in all, in all jest, kudos to Alberta for their 1950s program of rat eradication. And shame on them for letting it slip. Yeah. yeah. What are they doing? They do it up there. Anyway, so so to Michelle's point, the follow-up is, um, w- while rats are not welcome in Alberta, um, there there are uh, are rats in, in small pockets. <laughs> so so always always wear big pockets to hockey games. And hockey games and, and in food service, it's in an so it's in the SOPs for a lot of the chain restaurants. You probably don't know that, um, but <laughs> I had not seen that. Yeah, you, well, you're not as privy to. To some of the um, the retail SOPs uh, in, for Canadian fast food chains, as it relates to pest control, as I am clearly, and uh, it, there, there's a there's a whole section uh, on uh, pocket size, standard huh. standard standard pocket size. Keep those rats out. Indeed. <laughs> well, that really took a turn that I don't think Michelle was probably expecting. <laughs> well, you know that's 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 pretty much the entire show, <laughs> I think. Exactly. <clears throat> Um, so we have a, um, a uh, another piece of follow up from from Dina. Dina, and I I think I pronounced that correctly. Is that is that right, Don? Dina, yeah, I think it's, it's how you Dina. say it. Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't, I, I, it's not Dina. It's not Dina. No, yeah. no one's in the kitchen with uh, with with Dina. With Dina. No, a Dina, I think like uh, would have an H on the end. So I think I, you yeah, say I, Dina. I think so. And I've and I've met Dina. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I I'm horrible with pronunciations. Sometimes I even um, get your name wrong. <laughs> Dan Dan Schaefer. Dan, me. Dan, yeah, Dan Schaefer. <laughs> it's uh, it's German. Um, uh, anyway, so uh, so Dina asked us about a, a paper um, that came out this past month in JFP about cooking procedures on uh, 0157H7 in uh, in steaks on a uh, hot plate or gas barbecue barbecue grill, and uh, she asked us to do a little translation of that. Sure, and and first first of all, so thanks to. Dina, is that her name? Gosh, thanks to now you got me doing it. Thanks to Dina for listening and for and for asking uh, good questions. So this is a paper um, published in um, the the journal Food Protection, our our journal, um, by uh, Colin Gill and others. And uh, for those of you that uh, that don't uh, that don't know Colin, uh, you should. He's a, a Canadian uh, food safety researcher. Uh, he is with uh, Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada in uh, Lacombe, Alberta. Speaking of Alberta, man, this is an all-Alberta show. Um, <laughs> um, uh, and, and the title of the paper, and we'll, we'll, link, to, <clears throat> we'll link to the abstract uh, in the show notes. The, the title of the paper is Effects of Selected Cooking Procedures on the Survival of E. coli 0157H7 in Inoculated Steaks cooked on a hot plate or gas barbecue grill and you know this is this is uh good this is good stuff i mean this is similar to 
some of the stuff that I think uh, John Luchansky has done with uh, blade tenderized meat. There was um, uh, there was a recent uh, barf blog post that talked about this uh, two minute uh, flip. And th- this was the, right. this was the story, right? That this, this was the, the, this, the yeah. article that the story linked to. So, uh, so basically the idea was they took, uh, beef steaks. Okay. And, uh, two, two centimeters thick. I'm not sure what that is in American, but I think that's a pretty, that's a pretty thick steak. Well, that's about an inch thick steak, right? Yeah. That's, it's about a, it's a little less than an inch. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not how thick I like my steak, but I mm. think it would be a standard steak. Mm-hmm. thickness right. uh, that you would see at retail. Right. And and what they did was they inoculated that steak with E. coli 157H7. And it says uh, uh, in three sites in the central plane. Now, I'm assuming that they're ta- – if, if that's the – if you have the steak like it's on the grill, that's the horizontal plane, right? So they're basically taking – E. coli and putting it into the middle of the steak. So again, sort of simulating this blade tenderized or worst case scenario where somehow you get these pathogens in the middle of the steak. Is that, is, is that your interpretation? That's, yeah, that's kind of how I read it. Exactly. Right. And then, so what they did was they, so they inoculated at, uh, uh, 10 to the six. So that's a, a million bacteria in, in each of the three sites. So essentially it's three, three million bacteria in that steak. And, um, then they monitored the temperature, um, either cooking the steak on a hot plate or a gas barbecue. Now I, I, I have never cooked a steak on a hot plate, but, um, no. Uh, you know, I, I'm always, almost always using a, a, a gas barbecue. Have you ever? Uh, this is a like a little bit of a, a jump in here. Have you ever mm-hmm. cooked the snake on a um, on a charcoal grill? A snake? A snake? <laughs> Have you ever cooked snakes? <laughs> Wait, I've got one right here in my pocket. <laughs> no, I, I'm sorry, you misheard me. I asked if you cooked a rat on a charcoal grill. No, um, yeah, I, you know. Since we, we, we got a, after we moved into this house where we've been for some time now, we bought a gas grill, um, and I've never looked back. I think back when Kristen and I were dating, she might have had a hibachi uh, charcoal grill, and we tried cooking on it, probably chicken or something like that, and it's just not a pleasant experience, so I don't, I don't recommend it. No, I've, I'm, I'm kind of with you on that. So I, I, I have uh, – I, I consider myself a little bit of a uh, you know, backyard grill barbecue aficionado. Mm-hmm. Um, based on, I've purchased two items, one from both from Lowe's Home Hardware um, in the cheap section. Uh, I have this smoker that also doubles as a charcoal grill that's like really low, and then I've got a gas grill, and um, and, and I've been cooking. Well, I've been been grilling more on the. Um, on the charcoal grill, like things like hot dogs and turkey burgers, and, and I did a chick, a whole chicken on it, but it doesn't get hot enough for for what I would want for the, like how I like my steak. So, so mm-hmm. I don't, yeah. So that maybe that's why people are using hot plates. Those are the folks that only have charcoal grills. Yeah. But so this is this is interesting research, and it's a little bit. <clears throat> the findings are a little bit counterintuitive. So, what what they write is that when steaks were cooked on the hot plate. When steaks cooked on the hot plate were turned over every two to four minutes during cooking to between 56 and 62 degrees C, no E. coli was recovered from steaks cooked to greater than 58 or 62 respectively. So, you know, what that's saying is that, that again, the by virtue of this this cooking process and the turning process, um, you're able to get a, essentially, well, it's probably not a six log reduction, but 
um, anyway, you're, you're, you're able to go from uh, a million bacteria to undetectable. And again, we don't know what the detection limit is, at least from what we got here in front of us in the abstract. Um, but then they write, when steaks were cooked to less than 70, less than or equal to 71 and turned over once, E. coli was recovered from steaks in groups turned over after less than eight minutes, but not from steaks turned over after 10 to 12 minutes. So essentially what they're trying to do in this research is is sort of setting i guess sort of, they're sort of using temperature but they're also looking at the interaction of flipping the steaks right so 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 it's not only the the final cook temperature but it's it's whether you flip the steaks or not and um and again and and also looking at these two cooking methods looking at hot plate or uh, gas barbecue grill um so i mean i can see i can see why uh dina's a little bit confused about this because there's a lot of information here so but um anyway i mean i guess you know to kind of drop to the end of the uh uh, the the end of the abstract um there's a there's sort of a practical take-home punchline so what it says is that apparently comma um, and, and I, I and since I've started using Dragon Dictate to uh, to do all of my typing, I, I always say the punctuation uh, marks. Good, excellent. <laughs> Apparently, comma the microbiological safety of mechanically tenderized steaks can be assured by turning the steaks over at intervals of about two minutes during cooking to. Uh, greater than or equal to 60 degrees C in an open skillet or on a barbecue grill when steaks are turned over only once to cooking greater than 60 degrees C. Microbiological safety may be assured by covering the skillet or the grill with a lid during the final minutes of cooking. And again, we've talked about this before on the podcast, but I will just reiterate the way that I cook steaks is I get my gas grill super hot. Um, I take the, the steaks, which I'm, I don't think they're mechanically tenderized, but I, I take those steaks and I put them on the grill um, and then put my iGrill probe in them. So I'm monitoring the temperature uh, either via Bluetooth on my iDevice or on the, on the readout from the probe directly or the, 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 the unit directly. And then I honestly only flip them once, but I'm also monitoring the internal temperature to, so that it's cooked to, and again, I'm going to switch from C to F because, um, you know, when I cook my steaks here in America, we use we use Fahrenheit, good old American Fahrenheit. That's probably not an American name, is it? Um, <laughs> uh, uh, to 130, at least 130, and then and you know let them rest. And again, I think, and and again, the the because because this is what everybody should do uh, I get an integrated lethality curve which I then plug into some software to to calculate the f value <laughs> so I hope that's clear enough for for <laughs> for Dina yeah I, th- I think so so she's gonna get her f value calculator out exactly um, well I'll teach you how to use that spreadsheet it's it's it, it'll only take a couple of hours I mean it's it's <laughs> it's, it's worth it it's worth it this um, so I mean so I'm, I mean we're chucking and jiving a little bit here but I mean you know I think this is this is a good practical piece of work there is a practical take-home message at the end uh, the thing to me about all of this and I can't I can't help but bring this up every time I still want to know when I go to the supermarket 
um, whether my steaks are mechanically tenderized or not. Now, and we talked in the last episode a little bit about the Conference for Food Protection, and you sat in Council 3. Um, was there any mention of this mechanically tenderized steak issue at all at, at, at CFP? Uh, no. Okay. No, there wasn't. And, and I, this, it's a really – this is a good um, – you know, an area that I've been spending a lot of time thinking about. We we I have a graduate student who um, is starting in in uh, August, who's going to look at this and uh, a, a little bit on this question as well as a, a complementary or um, maybe that's not the right word, but uh, concurrently we've had another grad student um, at uh, at Virginia Tech who's going to work with uh, Renee Boyer, uh, looking at at a similar question. One of them is going to focus on retail, and one of them is going to focus on consumer on um, whether, I guess two things, whether anyone really knows, even if it was labeled, what it means. And, um, secondarily, if, even if, even if it wasn't, even if they didn't understand the label, if we could tell them what a mechanically tenderized, um, uh, piece of meat looks like, or piece of beef specifically is not looks like, but what it means, whether that would change, you know, cause them to handle that product any differently. So, I mean, to your, to your question and that, you know, that this, this came up or this has come up a lot is, um, right now it's really, really unclear, um, whether you know whether anyone knows whether anything is mechanically tenderized and mechanically is is very like nebulous because it includes things that may or may not push pathogens into the middle and and I'll add another thing to this that um that came up um uh, actually in talking with uh, uh Anna Portafet and uh, John Lachansky at, uh, at this meeting uh, that I was at last week in Nebraska is um, tube steak is uh, is a cut of meat that is mechanically tenderized, but it's it's also um, I don't know if you knew this, Don. I didn't know know it, but how you how, how the industry typically cubes cube steak is they put two cuts of thinly sliced meat together, mm. and then they run the cuber through it or run it through, through the cuber, cuber? huh? Yeah, and so, um, so, so it auto, you know, Anna, Anna brought up this point. She's like, we're not talking about needles that are putting pathogens that may be on the surface into the center with a cube steak. We're talking about two surfaces, absolutely, you know, top and bottom that are now sandwiched together. So, so your your chance of um, of surface contamination going to the middle is a hundred percent if there's contamination there, right? Cause it's, it's already in the middle. So, and, and she, um, Anna brought up this really, um, you know, consumption pattern, uh, piece where, uh, back, back about 15 years ago, cube steak was like the, the, you know, number 20 seller, uh, or, you know, not, not in the top 10 sellers of, of cuts of meat in the U S and now it's at number five. So we have a, a you know a large you know there's there's more consumption and the but anyway the cubing process for the most part happens at retail and that's so to your question on on CFP it really is a retail FDA question because because you know USDA FSIS doesn't have jurisdiction over that that pro, that process in a retail store um, and so the the proposed rules on labeling are really only going to impact. Um, you know, USDA inspected facilities uh, and, that, and what's going on at those facilities, which is 
you know, from anyone's guess, is not very much, uh, um, you know, blade or needle or, you know, mechanical tenderizing, where there's a lot more of it happening, um, you know, potentially at, at the retail setting. So, so it's probably, yeah, it wasn't really, um, it wasn't really discussed. I, it wasn't, I, you know, I don't now in council three was an issue. It may have been an issue somewhere else, but I don't think it was. Uh, but I think it's one that, um, with this, you know, the, the work that we're going to do, um, especially on the retail side of things, I, I you know, it, there may be a, um, you may see an issue from, from us, uh, coming out in, in 18 months, depending on what we see. Hmm. Well, and you know, it's interesting. Um, <clears throat> We, we often joke about Wikipedia never being wrong, but Wikipedia sometimes leaves stuff out. So I'm, yeah. right now I'm looking at the entry, the cube stake entry for Wikipedia, and it does not mention this this process, this this fact at all that you take two pieces of meat, you slap them together, and you run that through the tenderizer. So um, anyway, some, so while you're while you're at it, maybe you could fix Wikipedia too. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm going to get on that. Well, I mean, especially especially if uh, you know Luchansky. Um, uh, or or his colleague can provide a definitive reference, right? Because that's that's an important piece of information. It is, it is, and it's I, you know I I don't know if that's commonly held knowledge within the retail, um, you know, regulatory sector. Mm. Um, you know, I, I assume that it's it's pretty common knowledge within the retail sector that's that's doing it. Well, yeah, because somebody has to like know that's how you make it, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and maybe one of our one of our colleagues, one of our listeners who works in retail, can talk about that. You know, send us a send us a confidential email and let us know what they do. And and if they, you know, if I was a retail chain and I was making cube steak and it was my number five seller, I would make darn sure. And I don't know now. Do you know when you're selling steaks versus hamburgers, you still have to put that USDA cooking um direction on there right about the yeah, the warning exactly yeah. and is it, it's the same it's the same warning whether it's steak or a burger it, right it is the same warning and it, it it says things like undercooked meat is meat that is cooked to less than 160 degrees fahrenheit in this case but mm-hmm. but the i mean here here's the you know the the caveat to that is that um, people are often not buying cuts of meat and cooking it to 160. They're cooking it, especially like a cut, like a non-ground beef cut of meat. They're in even ground beef, but they're they're often cooking it at much lower to preference. As per our conversation that we talked about in episode 62, I think it was on um, uh, how you pref- how do you how do you like your um, your meat cook that was in five, the five thirty eight blog. Mm-hmm. Did we actually talk about that on the podcast, or did we just email or email about it? I, you know what I'm talking about? Yes, and I think we only emailed about it. I don't, I'm I'm re listening to sixty two, looking for show titles, and I don't I don't remember. And, and I certainly didn't link. I don't think I linked to anything. So, yeah. Well, this you know, this is a good time to um, to look at this. this is on the five thirty eight blog, which which Don and I I think I'll, I'll speak on your behalf. I think I'm, mm-hmm. we're fa- we're falling in love with this blog um, as they've expanded to ESPN, which is weird. Um, you know, this is Nate Silver's. Uh, Nate Silver started at New York Times doing um, statistical analysis of, uh, of politics and predicting elections and being really good at um, at sort of staying ahead of the story, and then has created this whole network of let's go into the numbers of um, of sort of everything um and so uh move to um move to espn uh maybe four three or four months ago uh and ha- has this like 
cadre of uh, of writers that are that are looking at uh, you know publicly available data and, and doing some of their own uh, work, but looking at things by the numbers. Um, and uh, they wrote uh, an article back uh, a couple of weeks ago, May sixteenth, on how Americans like their steak and. Um, what what they found uh, was, and this is a survey of uh, 432 steak eating steak eating Americans. Uh, Thirty. We'll, we'll go from the from the rarest to uh, well. Five percent um, prefer their uh, steak rare. I'm in that five percent. Hundred percent. Hundred percent in that five percent. Um, but then you've got a group of medium and medium rare, uh, uh, you know, individuals who like their their steak. Uh, those two types, you know, quality attributes, and it's like 69 percent of Americans are in that area, which would be to me um, less than one hundred and sixty degrees Fahrenheit, based on um, uh, what FSIS that says is. It is um, well done, which they say that that is 160 degrees Fahrenheit. So, um, so, so we know that the you know like from this, over 70 percent of of Americans prefer their steak below that that amount. So the the information's on there as you know this is undercooked, um, but. Uh, for the most part, the the risk is is low if it's an, a fully intact piece of meat. Once you get into cubing or, or mechanically tenderized, it's, it's it changes that that um, you know, that exposure equation at least. Um, I w- so the, so yeah, you need to have a label on there. But I think the, the situation is most people aren't following that label, that recommendation from a preference standpoint and could be managing their risk really effectively if it was an intact piece of beef. But but if not, then it may be riskier. And this Gill paper gives, and like you mentioned, some of the Lachansky stuff, um, gives some practical recommendations on how to manage that risk, but also that it's a little more complicated than just, um, you know, I want my steak medium to reduce my risk. Right. And, and who, yeah. And who can even agree on what medium is? Yeah. Again, I will often ask at a restaurant, I will ask, you know, what is medium here at this restaurant and I'll get a color description. And as we know, color is not a good indicator. And I guess, I mean, so, so kudos to, to Colin and his team for doing the research. I'm you know, the, 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 the problem is it just shows how darn complicated it is. Right. And then, well, and it's a, and they, and they only tested one kind of barbecue grill. Right. So, right. I mean, and, and obviously whether the lid is open or closed makes a difference, but you know, how, what, what setting you use on the grill. I mean, all of this is, you know, there's just so many variables that ultimately I think the best advice we have for consumers is, you know, get a thermometer, right. Um, and then, and then use that thermometer to, to manage your risk appropriately. And if you, if you like, um, less well-cooked pieces of meat, then you need to seek out, um, somebody that's going to sell you one that is not, you know, mechanically tenderized. So it's, it's just a confusing mess, right? Because that, that, that is not a soundbite message you want to give to somebody. Right. And, um, oh, there's so much to talk about on this. So... (laughs) The, the here so I have another project um, uh, going on a, sort of a not a small project but just one of these like hey let's do it for some pop science and because um, 
because there hasn't been a whole lot done in this area, it's looking at um, popular cookbooks for their food safety recommendations or food safety content. What you know, what what is in there? If you look at um, you know the last ten years of New York Times bestsellers of um, uh, of cookbooks or cooking related books, um, and so one, one of the um, one of my extension associates, Katrina Levine, has been working on on this project and going through literally like hundreds and hundreds of recipes from from these popular books, and and you know this Gill paper kind of. Um, it made me think of this a little bit because it's you know, what where I think this idea came from is looking at the you know they, they have it here in the discussion culinary instructions for cooking steaks commonly recommend that steaks be turned over only once during cooking I mean that so those culinary recommendations that um, that are that are linked that are linked there are um, you know from beef handling uh, groups but I, I would say that 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 probably is pretty common in the in the cookbook world. And actually, as I we talked about this, I was I sent Katrina a note. I was like, okay, let's add this to the list and go back through those recipes to see what it says um, for this. But we're you know you and I, and as Danny would say, the the rest of the food safety nerds, um, we, we're concerned about this, and we look at how this is communicated, but the the culinary world or the folks that are writing cookbooks either, you know, might not think it's as important as we do, might not know about it, might not care, um, or, or are trying to do it, but are doing, doing it wrong by saying things like, um, you know, cook the chicken till the juices run clear, which are, you know, it's not, you not, not a science-based recommendation, but, but ultimately people are, uh, they're not going to the journal of food protection to look at how to cook a steak. Right. Like, yes, the, yeah. I think we can. I think that there's there's little certain in the world, but that's probably one of the things that we can be certain about. Yeah. And so that's that that's our challenge is how do you take this information and, and information like this and get it into the hands of people that are making cookbooks or creating cookbooks. And so our you know, our first step, there, there was a paper that was done in the early 80s that looked at food safety recommendations in popular cookbooks, but nothing you know, not, nothing that, that we could find has been published um, since then. And we were doing some work looking at YouTube videos at the same time and, and sort of different things. But it was interesting to, for us to say, okay, well, let's look at where, you know, people that seem to be interested in cooking are going to find out what, how to do this. Let's see what kind of food safety information is there. And and turns out, you know, in the in the preliminary stuff that, that Katrina shared, it, you know, like twelve percent or eighteen percent say use a thermometer, and the rest are um, you know look at color uh, as or, or juices or um, you know touch the meat, and this is like you know firmness, like in in a ground you know turkey burger would be the same recommendation as uh, you know as a steak. Um, so so we've got we've got a lot to do there, but but the the. You know how do we how do we get the signs out of the out of the journal and into the cookbooks? Well, and I you know, and I'm surprised that it's as high as twelve or eighteen percent. You know, that's and, that that's that that blows my mind. And it should and it should be higher, right? I mean, ideally, from a food safety perspective, we'd like it to be a hundred percent. Right, right. But yeah, I think there's a tremendous potential to do this this kind of thing. And you know, how I describe the five thirty eight blog is quantitative journalism, right? And and really, that's what you're doing. You know, you're doing a quantitative analysis of cookbook recommendations, and it's very similar to something 
that one of one of my students has been doing we've talked about a little bit before uh, both on and off the podcast is uh, uh, Dane Jensen is reviewing or has collected hand washing recommendations from the internet and and looking at all of the different signage you might see in a restroom around hand washing and and it's not it's not consistent at all right and and some of it is more science based and others is is less but but again you know it's just it, it's it's just a very interesting field to kind of look at the the shape of the world you know in this in this quantitative way and and what does it tell us and, and where where are we now and where do we where do we need to be so well and and it comes back to what we could just subtitle the entire podcast um series is food safety is not simple mm-hmm. like there's the science isn't simple and the messages aren't simple but so to to be like oh you know it's just common sense um is is maddening to me the more the more that I get into it, it's like, oh yeah, okay. Here, take the take a look at this paper. Tell me what the common sense answer is out of this. Well, you know, and that's where this whole thing started, Ben. So let's 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 wrap right. this up. And what do we tell Dina? Well, to me, I think we tell we we tell Dina that um, that keeping the lid closed seems to matter. Mm-hmm. That um, hold time seems to matter. Um, that if you want to uh, reduce your risk. Um, a thinner steak, thinner than I than I prefer, and literally, I want I I do want a one and a half inch steak, or more. Um, that that seems to matter, uh, and and to ask questions on whether it's mechanically tenderized because this whole paper is based on on the concept that that a pathogen's been um, been pushed you know been pushed through, mm-hmm. um, and that turning the steak more than once. Uh, is is probably especially with that with that lid closed is probably going to make a, um, a, a a safer steak in the end. Yeah. How would you how would you uh, ca- categorize this? Yeah, I I think I would say I would say the same thing. But let let me come back and say, um, you know, ultimately use a thermometer, right? Because I yeah. I am I am I am going to keep cooking steaks the same way I've been cooking them, which is to use. A meat thermometer, you know, with a with a, a probe with it with a readout, right? Not not a, a, a tip sensitive, you know, stem thermometer, but but a thermocouple, a probe. And again, I realize it's not in everybody's budget to do that, and certainly if you're not a if you're not a food safety nerd, to do that. But um, but I, that's what I'm going to do. And you know, the other thing, I'm I'm just trying to think like why do why do I only turn my steaks once? And the reason why is if you have that thermocouple, that probe in there, it makes it hard to manage the steak. And the more you turn the steak, the higher the chance that's going to, things going to fall out, right? Oh. So I try to put it in into the steak in such a way that it comes in from the side and it, it will allow me to turn the steak, but then I'm only going to turn the steak once. And, you know, again, now we're moving off of the paper into my own personal recommendations, but yeah, for sure I cook with the lid closed, um, and and but I'm only going to turn it once, just from a practical point of view. But but I, I think probably the best the best thing the best recommendation is one that's not in the paper, which is you ought to get a thermometer, right? If you're going to cook steaks, and and not and not just for safety, right? I mean, we don't. You know, I mean, I don't, I don't mind a well cooked steak, but I like my steak generally less than less than well done, uh, maybe medium well or even medium. But the best way to assure that as well is with a thermometer. 
right? right. Because I, I'm crap at telling what it looks like inside, right? I mean, I'm just not that experienced the, a chef to know that. So, right. so for a, for practical reasons too, you ought to get a thermometer. Yeah, uh, totally. And makes it's all you know. The, it makes has made me a better cook. Um, the the more that I use it, um, before. Oh, you know, because that was that was our summary statement. Mm-hmm. But now you're going to keep going. I'm going to add one more thing. <laughs> okay, go ahead. And this is just a this is a like put you know put it in the parking lot, stick a pin in it. Corporate talk for me. Um, I don't think that using a lid on a on a grill or any sort of top to a steak is common practice in food service. Hmm. From from the restaurants that I've been in their kitchens, um, and I haven't been in a lot of high-end places, but I have been into to kitchens, um, you know, your, your family style restaurants that are, that, that are cooking steaks. Um, and, and, and they're using, um, either a charcoal or a gas grill, uh, but, but they're not throwing, um, sort of aluminum top plates on, on top of it. They use those to like melt cheese usually, um, on, but, but not, a. I don't, I don't think they're cooking with the lid on. You know that's that's really interesting that you mentioned that, and and now I'm going to extend extend past the the end of the of the the segment even further. F- yeah, I mean for sure I don't see that a lot, but you know one place where I do see that is we, there's a, a place that we go um, in the, the the mall here in Freehold um, that serves. Um, Euro, so it's a Greek Greek style yeah. restaurant, and I always get the gyro meat, which they they cut off of the uh, the formed uh, the formed thing, and then they throw it in a warming box, and it's always I mean it's it's chopped meat, but it's always very well cooked, I think. But uh, Kristen always gets the uh, chicken, and what and they have a very flat piece of chicken, which they may have they may have pounded flat, right? Um, but um, when they throw that on the grill, they always put an aluminum pie tin over it, right? And it's it's thin, and and it's, it always seems to be well cooked. I don't see them ever temp it right uh, with a, with a thermometer, but for sure they throw that they throw that uh, uh, that pie tin over it, which uh, which I think you know obviously makes a difference. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, I think we've got some data in front of us here that that shows that 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 would and. And, you know, intuitively, and, yeah, 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 it makes sense in terms of physics, right? You retain the heat, you have that even heating around the outside. It's going to get get you better heat penetration for sure. Yeah. Well, thanks, Dina, for um, for giving us some uh, giving us a great question to, that we could riff off for for almost an hour. <laughs> oh, geez, it is almost an hour. Well, <laughs> and and most of all, Dina, I hope it helped. <laughs> well, that too, that too. Um, so, so that's 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 what we got uh, for follow up. Um, this is the the time in the show uh, where we do outbreak flashback. Is that is that correct? That is correct. All right. Now I know um, uh, Bob Gates uh, from episode uh, sixty two was not super excited with my uh, intro, but I'm going to try again. Okay, here we go. Do 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 do. Outbreak flashback. All right. Well done. So, and 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 again, in in typical fashion, uh, we have prepared for this show with great effort, um, namely um, uh, Googling something on, on Wikipedia. Um, but uh, we had a while ago, we had uh, a friend of the show, uh, Michelle Daniluk, uh, suggest that we, and, and this is kind of spe- in, in keeping with this quantitative approach, right? So one of the earliest um, 
uh, food safety related disciplines um, that was quantitative was the the discipline of dep- epidemiology and so we're going to take uh, we're going to take uh, take you back to 1854 um, to broad that's us going back in time, <laughs> okay. like Wayne's World style. Excellent, excellent. I, I, I was expecting a Doctor Who, uh, a Doctor Who themed uh, 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 noise since it was London and everything. But do you, you know, do, you, do you watch Doctor Who? No, but we've talked about this. You know that I was really creeped out by Doctor Who when I was a kid. So it's, I'm still not over it. <laughs> My dad made me watch it. It's creepy, creepy I, show. Yeah, yeah, and that was not even the creepy show, right? I mean, it was uh, that was back when it was uh, it was not nearly as creepy as it is now. <laughs> right, right. So, um, so we're, we're, we're back in, uh, uh, London. Um, it's the, uh, Broadwick, uh, well, it used to be Broad Street. It's now Broadwick Street in the Soho district of London in 1854. And, uh, there was a, a cholera ep- epidemic going on and, uh, there was a, John Snow, who's a physician, um, who's who's basically claimed by epidemiologists as the father of epidemiology, and basically, you know, back in the the, the mid nineteenth century, um, people really didn't know what caused um, uh, people to get sick. Like they thought it was. Uh, bad smells, right? Uh, and it turns out bad smells are correlated with poop. And and, and guess what? It actually is the poop that uh, is, is what what causes the illness. And so, so the 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 theory back at the time was um, called miasma theory. And and basically, what miasma theory said was that that it's it's bad air. And, and again, just to, to kind of keep it keeping in, in, in reference with the time, uh, to, as a, as a uh, historical point of reference, the germ theory of disease proposed by Louis Pasteur, uh, did, was not even proposed until 1861. So this is, uh, several years before the germ theory of disease. So, you know, you have people getting sick in London, you don't know why. Um, and, uh, and, and so John Snow, uh, basically tried to figure this out and and essentially what he what he did was through this uh, epidemiological analysis and the original the original map is is shown uh, there in the Wikipedia article basically showing uh, clusters of cholera in this outbreak and 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 basically turns out it was water from this pump that was causing the outbreak now um, snow could not uh, prove this uh, conclusively, um, but it did. Uh, it, it, it was enough to persuade the the local council to basically remove the handle from the pump. Um, and as it as is written in Wikipedia, this action has popularly been reported as ending the outbreak. Um, it turns out, if you study the the epi curve, it may in fact have been that the outbreak was already uh, on the decline. So it's not you know against one of those turns out things like you know you talk about John. John Snow removing the pump handle or, or convincing people to remove the pump handle and that ends the outbreak. Well, it's kind of like modern food safety where, um, you know, the, there's a product recall done and the outbreak goes down. But if you look at the epi curve, the, out, the recall typically is done on the tail end of the epi curve. And if it was a sort of a, a pulse level of contamination through the product, um, it turns out it may, it may, the outbreak may have already been on the decline. So, um, but anyway, if you have, if you're not 
familiar with uh, Jon Snow and the theory of the pump handle, uh, take a look at that Wikipedia entry and and, and check it out. It's pretty it's pretty interesting stuff. And there's there's you know a bunch of books that have been written, um, and and just you know real real interesting stuff to think back to you know what uh, uh, what happened uh, back in the day. And I have to say, having visited London a bunch of times, and and in fact most recently just within a month or two, um, I I have yet to visit the uh, um, uh, the uh, the John Snow Memorial, but I, but I should put that on my list of things to do the next time I'm in London. If if only Ben, if only I had someone to tell me how to get organized and manage my time and attention. I'll I'll I'll, I'll work on that. And I, I yeah, if we could go to that together, um, it'd be awesome. There, go to go to the London together. London? Are you asking me out on a date, Ben? I, yeah, let's go to London. Let's go to London Town. <laughs> um. So the, this this outbreak is really really cool. I, I do remember um, uh, this being uh, sort of the focus of one of my uh, undergraduate micro microbiology classes. And of course, the thing and I was reminded as I read through the Wikipedia entry, the thing that stuck out in my mind then was um, in that map and as Snow kind of traced it um, to to water by using sort of statistics on the connection between, um, you know, who was eating, who was drinking out of there and who wasn't, there was one kind of anomaly, um, that there were monks in adjacent, in adjacent monastery and none of them got sick. None of them got cholera. And it's because they didn't drink water. They drank they, beer. They drank beer <laughs> and, and brewed it themselves out of the water. Uh, but that, um, you know, the, the, the brewing fermentation process, uh, uh, took care of the the cholera, and of course, so that was you know turned into oh well, if you don't want to get sick, just drink beer. Um, and the the professor who who told this story, um, uh, his name is uh, Anthony Clark. He had uh, done his PhD at the Carlsberg Institute in Copenhagen, uh, Denmark, and was uh, thought also said yeah, just just drink beer, everybody. <laughs> um, so. Uh, it was good, really good suggestion from from Michelle. Uh, a, a, an important outbreak um, in the in the history of epidemiology and, and in, you know ultimately in food safety uh, for for us to to build upon. Um, so um, outbreak flashback. That was it, and here's the outro. Do 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 do. Outbreak flashback. That's very uh, Rolling Stones influenced. It, it, it was. It was. It was. It was straight because, out of because of London. Because of London, exactly. Right, Governor. Uh, <laughs> oh man, uh, great. Um, so here's um, you know, let's you you got a little bit of time, um, and I wanted to spend maybe ten or fifteen minutes talking a little bit about growing. You know, something that that we've that didn't, uh, you know, asked us to talk about in, in beef, but this, um, outbreak, uh, linked to, um, a, uh, packing facility in Detroit, um, that led to a recall. And I've been following this up, uh, or following this right from the start, because, um, as, as I've mentioned, uh, on the podcast before, we, we have a, a, a project, an ongoing project right now that links, a hundred percent directly to this outbreak. And so, um, the illnesses, uh, from this, uh, and it's Wolverine packing company. Wait, wait, uh, sorry. What did you say? I don't know. Wolverine. Wolverine? 
Wolverine. <laughs> I was I was like really excited for a minute. I thought we were going to talk about comic books. We are. We are. Hey, hey, man. If that if that is Wolverine's packing company, I am not going to mess with that dude. No, exactly. <laughs> and his adamantium um, uh, slicers and grinders. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so so they're. Um, there are a bunch of illnesses, um, 11 confirmed right now, but I, you know, as, as happens in the, in the world of food safety, you know, you hear things from, from people that there are probably more that are going to get connected to this the longer we go, uh, on it. Um, certain States are a little slower than others and, um, in reporting their, um, the, the reportable illnesses and, um, they, they take more time you know, with going public and all that kind of stuff. So right now we know that there's 11. Well, and in, uh, in fact, just, just to, 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 just to, to, to put a pin in that, um, in the parking lot, um, to, to harken back, there was an episode we recorded quite a while ago when you said, well, we don't really have time to talk about this, but I'm sure this outbreak is going to get bigger. Yeah. So, so, I mean, and you, we can roll the tape back and people can listen. Um, but, but I think you were right, Ben. I mean, this, uh, seven you know, men, I think, yeah. Yeah. And now we're at 11. Um, but, um, but also, you know, at the, you know, at the same time, um, it kind of, this, this is a, a, a really good example outbreak of, um, complications around cooking practices, uh, the, the supply chain. So, they, so they got this recall 1.8 million pounds of, uh, of beef, like, you know, that, that was associated with the lots that have led to illnesses. All the illnesses have been linked at this point to people going into a restaurant and ordering a hamburger. So they, they were provided with a burger or provided with the E. coli 157H7 through a different mechanism. Um, but they, they got sick because they went to a restaurant. They didn't handle anything at home. They didn't buy anything at a grocery store. Um, but they went to a, a, a restaurant. And I, so, so the, the reason why, why this is a, such a timely topic um, for me is that, you know, this project that we have going on is all about ordering uh, undercooked burgers and, and, and overcooked burgers or, or sufficiently cooked burgers, I guess, at restaurants and the communication that um, that's given uh, either on a menu or from a, a server. And Ellen Thomas, and I mentioned this project a few times on the podcast, uh, Ellen Thomas is a graduate student who's been working on this, and she um, – uh, the, the idea came came about actually a long time ago for this project. Um, it was – as Doug and I were golfing at an IAFP golf tournament in Baltimore in 2006, I think it was, and uh, we won that tournament. By the way, Don, uh, just as uh, I know that that matters for well, the listeners. Well, well done. Well, thank done. you, thank you. Um, Wait, hold on. We'll do a little. That's a golf clap. Golf clap. Very good. <laughs> well done. Um, so, so at that at that tournament. Um, and Doug's recounted this, this story multiple times in the blog. Um, we, at, at the turn, as they call it, so in between the ninth and 10th holes, there was a, uh, a grill set up and, uh, they're cooking up burgers for us. Uh, and, um, there were a couple of members in front of us in line and, uh, they asked, 
uh, you know, the, the the kid who was flipping the burgers said, "How do you want those burgers done?" And the guys in front of us both said, "Bloody." And uh, and you know, Doug and I probably over the you know the three or four beers that we drank on the back is as well as the golf since we were winning, um, we talked about how uh, that the the kid who was serving those burgers probably didn't um, know or um, didn't you know sort of wasn't wasn't valuing food safety enough to sort of to inform those individuals that that might be a risky product and then so we that grew into this idea of well who does need to tell people that and the food code um and this did come up at cfp this year the food code has a whole section on consumer advisories and uh has a a set of guidelines on how to how to communicate this, and, and often uh, times uh, it's done on a menu. But the the food code says that you've got to disclose that there's a risk, and that you have to remind somebody at the time of ordering uh, of that of that risk. And um, so this project that we've been that, that Ellen's been doing is. Um, you know, we, we decided, okay, well, we could ask people how they disclose this or we could, you know, get a collection of the menus and do some sort of analysis on it. But why don't we pose as, so- as secret shoppers um, and, and really go out and have conversations with servers uh, based on, um, you know, ordering uh, undercooked burger? Um, and so she, she signed up about, oh, 30 or 35 secret shoppers in seven different places uh, across the U.S. and um, did a random sample of restaurants in those areas. And so we've got sort of all the demographics on those restaurants. And the restaurants that we focused on for this project have been full service, um, you know, family style sit down kind of kind of restaurants. And um, we have, you know, Ellen sent sent these folks in there um, to, to have lunch. And then at the end of lunch, um, so we weren't exposing people to uh, to pathogens uh, or the risk of pathogen, at least, or an increased risk. Um, we uh, asked the um, asked to get uh, takeout burgers and order one burger uh, medium rare or less. And actually, it's medium rare. And one burger well done. And then engage in a conversation with the server about those risks. And so Sometimes uh, the server volunteers some information about, you know, well, we can't do that for food safety reasons um, on the medium rare burger. Sometimes they don't, and we prompt them with a um, with sort of a set of prompts, and then record all the um, the conversation, not not like audio record, but sort of take notes and uh, and then code that information for how well. Um, they are in compliant with the the food code as well as whether they do a good job communicating risk, which is really two different things in in my uh, in my mind. So so anyway, we've been working on this project for um, uh, oh you know the you know the history goes back you know almost ten years, but but the the data collection's gone back uh, about a year um, or yeah till last summer where we started piloting this and figuring out how to do it, uh, and lo and behold we have this outbreak that pops up that is exactly linked to to these to burgers in 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 restaurants. Now um, I, I said earlier that. Um, FSIS and CDC have been really careful. They haven't said that these illnesses are linked to, to undercooked burgers. They said that the risk factor is eating burgers or eating hamburgers in a restaurant. So I think that there, you know, we, we still don't know whether there's cross-contamination as a, a, as a factor here. Um, but anecdotally, in the media coverage of this outbreak, uh, three of the individuals um, that I've seen so far have 
um, been reported as ordering a burger and it came to them undercooked. Now, we don't know how they, how they ordered it, whether they ordered it medium rare or not. And, um, you know, that, that would really, uh, sort of solidify our, our project a little bit. But, um, but regardless, they, they, they got an, what they termed as an undercooked burger. Right. Which, um, which would, in my mind, seem to imply that it was cooked less than they wanted. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I don't know. Could I be, mean, yes. and, and it's only eight cases. And so I think, you know, CDC is very conservative, you know, when they, when they make recommendations or they talk about stuff. So if there's not enough there to really hang their hat on statistically, you know, I, I don't think they're going to go out there and say it. Um, but, but it certainly is interesting that in, in three separate instances, you said, right. Yeah, you've, you've seen that reported. So three out of 11, that's, uh, you know, that, you know, again, there's no way to do statistics on that, but boy, that seems awfully, uh, um, that, that seems awfully interesting. Well, and, and it kind of shows, I mean, this is the, the thing, the, the nuance of it is, um, is what you said. They, it, it came less than what they expected, but there isn't really a definition temperature wise for any of these, um, these quality preferences. So medium rare. And, and in fact, so all the, the interviews that, that I did about this early on, that's one of the things that I, um, that I focused on because the question is, well, what can someone do as a consumer to protect themselves? Right? Like that's always what, what, what we get. And that's, that's a good, it's a good question. Um, and it's a tough one in this one. Um, CDC and, and, and FSIS, I think erroneously said things like cook your burgers, or cook ground beef to 160 degrees. I'm like, well, but that's not how people are getting sick. They're not doing the cooking. You need to order it to 160 degrees or 155 for 15 seconds or, you know, those, those, they're basically equivalent. And that, that piece of information is, is in both of their, um, their messages, but it's not the, the main focus. And FSIS said, and we'll link to this in show notes, but, but there is a blog post, um, by a guy who I can't remember his name right now, but on the FSIS blog that said, order your burger to 160 degrees or well done. That's equivalent. Mm. From, from this work that we're seeing, there's such variability in, in the, um, at least in the color. And of course, color is not an indicator, but, but we, you know, one of the things that we do, we don't have the, the opportunity to look at what the temperature is, but if we looked at, uh, variability of uh, uh, of how cooked things are based on on color, not you know taking the the quality the um, safety out of it. You get you order a well done burger. There's a lot of variability. Um, you order a medium rare, rare burger. There's a lot of variability. It's a totally different. So so being able to say well well done is essentially 160 degrees. I don't believe that because no one's told food service that that that's the definition because the food code doesn't say that the food code says anything less than 160 degrees is undercooked. It doesn't say anything about medium rare, well done or anything like that. Um, so it's, so it, this is a, it's a, it's a bit of a complex one. Um, and, and it's, you know, the, the plot thickens as they say, because, um, Wolverine packing company did have, you know, some of their 1.8 million uh, pounds of, of beef ended up not just at food service, which is their primary um, 
uh, sell you know a primary market, but did end up in some grocery stores in, in certain states um, because that's you know the nature of the, the uh, of the food trade. Um, so so there haven't been any illnesses uh, that that we know of yet linked to in home preparation or consumption of that beef. Everything's been linked to food service, but to me, it's it's and it's four or five different restaurants if i remember correctly so it's not just one sop that was wrong uh, or not wrong but but wasn't um wasn't followed or you know maybe people did order their their burgers medium and and medium to them was was not as cooked as it, they thought it was but it's cuz no, nothing has temperatures no one cares about temperatures out there mhm yeah <laughs> So so anyway, this this one's this one's interesting, and uh, um, you know what what we're finding, you know, just to to bring it back to Dallin's project is um, some really like there are some consistencies chain wise. Um, a couple of one chain in particular, and we'll, we had to sort of run all the stuff, and I won't, I'm not going to share the chain name right now. Um, once we look at all the stats, but there's one one chain that we have in just randomly um, from our you know random um, selection uh, have in six of seven spots, and the answers and the discussions that that, that have happened are strikingly consistent on a good way, in a good way. Oh, that's good. Well, th- th- to me, yeah. that says that they're doing something right. Exactly. Um, other chains, though, where we have similar kind of crossover are not consistent. So there's something there at this one chain that's like, well, how do you get your people mm-hmm. to do this right? Mm-hmm. What makes you different um, from the others? Independents are all over the place. Yeah. And in fact, yeah, what we, what we found um, – and I, I shouldn't say what we found. What it seems to be pointing to right now is that uh, an independent – place is is more likely if you order a burger well done to try and talk you out of that because they think that that is a a, a, a worse experience for you sure it it's a, yeah it's a yeah. lower quality product agreed yeah and, and so so we've got this you know they may be meeting this this is you know for for me and where it all kind of comes into cfp is sure a restaurant may be meeting the requirement of the consumer advisory on their menu you know they've got this um this message that says, uh, you know, this is undercooked and it's a higher risk, blah, blah, blah. But then when you order that burger, you get an entirely flipped message. So, so there, there's some confusing, um, discussion that happens that, that leaves you know, a, a consumer in a place of, well, your menu says this, but you just told me that that's really not the case. So what do I do? How do in your, you as the server are, are, you know, you're here and I can have a conversation with you and you're my risk communicator. Yeah. You're the, you're the quote unquote expert, right? Or at least the exactly. risk communicator. Exactly. Um, so it's, it, it's been good. I don't, I, you know, it's one of these things where it's been s- sort of large, and we're, you know, the data's rolling in. Um, I'm, we're not exactly sure what, what you know, specifically we're, we're finding uh, or what the conclusions are, but it's been a, it's been a fun, uh, fun ride. Um, the last thing I want to mention before we kind of seal, button it up, as, as they say on the Internet, um, is that uh, I, I, you know, I, I talked about this um, this project uh, last week in Nebraska, because this is primarily what we've been focusing on for this uh, STEC project. And uh, at, uh, about is that, is that how you say it now? That's how some Steck? people say it. I don't say it that I, way. I, I say S Tech. Me too. I say okay. S Tech too. 
I, th- I don't know why they say I don't know. Uh, it's confusing to me. Dina, Dinah, who's in the kitchen? <laughs> um, and are they cooking steaks with S-Tech? Are they, or Stack. Or Stack. Um, Sounds like so, Shrek, and that's a movie. Right. Um, about an hour and a half before I was supposed to give a talk, you and I and, and um, Doug got an email from our friend Carl Custer, which we haven't – I haven't talked to him in, uh, about this, but I'm sure you'd be fine with, with sharing this. Um, he, he described a situation, which I'm going to read uh, an excerpt from it, where – which crystallizes why we're doing the project in this outbreak. So he says, for what it's worth, last night, number one wife dragged me to an upscale restaurant because of their truffle hamburger had been highly rated in the Washingtonian. On requesting, quote, how would you like it cooked? Mary replied, quote, well done. I replied, 155 degrees internally. The waiter was perplexed. I told the cook who would understand, or told him the cook would understand, in parentheses, I hoped. Mary chided me about asking for 155 and opined, who the hell knows what 155 means? I averred it's regulations for retail service. After serving, I asked the waiter, quote, did the cook explain 155 degrees? Yeah, he said that it was medium well done. So they, <laughs> so they used the thermometer, not their thumb. Quote, no, they don't use the thermometer, only temperature. <laughs> yeah. Mind-boggling, mind-boggling, but that's the reality, oh. and that's the that that I, absolutely. And I, I thank Carl for that, and I, I don't, I'm not sure if he's he's a listener to oh. this, but man, it, yeah. I, I'm going to use that as a, as the opening in like the the whole theatrics that I have, where I brought my cell phone, my you know my iPhone up, and I waved it, and I said, I just got this email. Let me read this to you, um, and it worked. And I'm I'm going to give a talk on. Uh, uh, on Wednesday, where I'm going to talk a whole bunch about this project, uh, and I'm going to use it again because it that this isn't just you know here's a little anecdote. This is something that happens at the height of an outbreak. Um, that you know this national coverage thing. We still we still don't know the the communications. Uh, it's it's a bit messy. So mm-hmm. so thank so thanks for letting me, um, thanks for letting me have my uh, vocal opus there. No, no problem, no problem. I mean, this is this is an interesting this is an interesting issue, and it sounds like a really cool project. So I look I look forward to learning more about what you guys find. Oh, and and in kind of a related a related thing, um, uh, we talked I think on episode one um, about a a local chain that used to when my kids would go order a burger, um, they would ask my kids uh, who at that age were yeah I guess not super susceptible to. Oh one five seven eight seven or S Tex as they say or as some people say, um, and and the chain used to the server used to ask my turn to my kids and say how would you like that done, um, you know and then we the parents would answer well done um, you know and of course not 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 one fifty five so you know we could we could have been better instead of just saying well done um, and so you know and, and that was a, that's, I've used that as a talking point before right. but I have to say that very same restaurant um, when we got takeout. Um, uh, the other night, um, had a little, um, uh, thing on a little sticker on the, uh, on the takeout containers, which I, which I tweeted, uh, with the citizen food safety tag and, and you, and you retweeted that as well. So, so maybe that, that particular chain is making progress in terms of their, uh, food safety communications. I had, again, I still, I haven't gone in to the store, into the, the, the restaurant in, in many years other than to pick up takeout, um, which is, which are typically salads without 
without um, without any any uh, ground beef or, or, or any burgers. So, um, but uh, anyway, so uh, maybe progress can be made. But again, very interesting project, and thanks thanks so much for sharing that with us. Well, th- thank you, and uh, um, I think that's probably a show. I think so. Well, as always, thanks, Don. Okay. Um, and uh, we'll uh, I, I will talk to you later. And you will talk to me later, and we'll talk to the listeners together, even later than that. <laughs> I'm, I'm really confused now about what we're going to do, but <laughs> I, I trust I that you have it all figured out. I watched Anchorman 2 last week. I think I'm talking like Ron Burgundy now. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I'll talk to you later. All right. Take care, Ben. Bye-bye. Bye. That was good. That was good. Good. We had a lot to say. We did. We we rarely don't. Don't. It's kind of, it's fun. It's so much fun. So FST 64? Yeah. Wow. What, when I'm 64, another Beatles reference. Yeah. <laughs> you liked my Norwegian wood. Yeah. I got, Norwegian, I, I, Norwegian yeah, I, I got that. Uh, I, that's in, it's in the, the links here for show notes. <laughs> uh, okay. 9 a.m. Uh, June 16th. Perfect. Perfect. And I, I want to, I just want to clarify too, who's doing what on the other one. So 61 is, is up and out. Yes. Um, but I, I don't know like, like who's doing, it's totally confused. And I was listening back to the conversations and we were talking about who was going to do what on 61. And then I knew at some point I said, no, because you did like two in a row. So I'll just do all of 61. But then or, that wasn't yeah. what we were – I don't know when we had that conversation because it, it wasn't what was in the recording. So, Well, and okay. So I think for 62, I have audio and you have show notes. Got it. That was my, my plan because you gave me – because I had everything except for the first like 20 seconds. So you uploaded the, okay. the show notes so I could cut and paste it out, which I haven't done yet. Um, but yeah, that's my, that was my plan. Is that still good? Totally fine. Yeah. I mean, I'm, okay. I'm, I'm re-listening to 62 for titles and, okay. uh, which is good anyway, cause I'm going to have to do the show notes apparently. So it's, it's, to, it's totally fine. I'm, I'm just, yeah, I just, I, I just sort of plan to, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm just, yeah. I'm, I, you know, I need, Ben, I need someone to tell me how to best manage my time and attention. If only there was somebody I knew that would come and give a talk and explain that to me. Well, and even if it was like at a place where you know, we were doing something else, 
Mm-hmm. Like yeah. if we were if we were just doing food safety stuff and someone was like, "Hey, um, can I can I grab you for a second and uh, tell you about uh, how to manage time and attention?" And uh, yeah, exactly. And I, I'd go. I mean, even if it was over a lunchtime. Yeah, right. I mean, you could eat lunch really quick, and yep. yeah, uh, it, it'd be it'd be great. Um, I would. Uh, I'd be there. I would not. I wouldn't take notes because mm-hmm. I don't take notes. Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe Tony I, Robbins is free. He's a good motivational speaker. I think he's. <laughs> isn't he in jail? Did is he, he get arrested? <laughs> Seriously? The, literally. The, I think oh he's my gosh. in jail. Yeah, I think he. Uh, let's see, Tony Robbins. I'm not thinking of Tom Robbins. No, he's different. Yeah, Tony Robbins. Uh, maybe I'm jail. Tony Robbins jail prison. Uh, yeah, maybe not. Maybe I'm thinking of somebody else. There's someone who uh, who's in jail. Yep, not him. Oh, Tony Tony Robbins' motivational stunt goes wrong. Uh, but that was uh, back in. Yeah, there's some guy. Oh, you know yeah, what? Um, he wrote a book yeah. or something that was wrong. Yeah, beware of self help. This is a uh, uh, USA Today. Beware of self help gurus. Um, nationally known self help guru James Arthur Ray is scheduled to be released Friday. This is back in July 2013. Uh, after serving 20 months in prison for the deaths of three people, or during a 2009 sweat lodge ceremony. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, well maybe I do that's remember what I, this. Yeah. Oh man. Um, so. so apologies to Tony Robbins. Sorry, Tony. Sorry. <laughs> and and to and to Merlin for comparing it with Tony Robbins. Yeah. Right. Well. I, if if I was going to compare Merlin to any Robbins, it would be Tim Robbins. Tim Robbins, <laughs> yes, yes. Because Tim Robbins is pretty awesome, right? Right. And who's the who's the author? Tom Tom Robbins, Robbins right? Who's also awesome. Oh, and speaking yeah. of awesome authors, um, Kurt Vonnegut Memorial Library, Indianapolis, In, right down the street from the hotel. So I, you know, I've got to have to read a couple more Kurt Vonnegut books. Oh, you should. You should. Yeah, Merlin, Merlin actually met him when 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 Vonnegut came to speak at his college. So, yeah. oh, he's yeah, Vonnegut's great. Did you ever see? I, Doug sent me a, a YouTube video. You might have also sent it to me of him of Kurt Vonnegut um, explaining the shapes of stories. Mm. No, that okay. sounds familiar, but I but yeah, I'm gonna flip you the I'm gonna flip you the bird. No, that's not. <laughs> Is that what the oh, kids say? Go. That's what the kids say. There, I sent you the link. Oh, thanks. It was. It's awesome. It's it's really short, but it's like here's how every story ever told is is structured. Oh yes, yes, yes. We did talk about this. Yes, and, and I maybe I did send you the link. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We'll we'll link to it in show notes for all the other people. But yeah, good stuff. Yeah, oh, good so stuff. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Ah, all right. Well, hey, you got five minutes, so yep. might as well give you a, a restroom break. Thanks. <laughs> I can, I can, I can. It's okay. I, I when I'm podcasting, I can't pee, but if I'm on a conference call, I I might be. You never know. Yeah. And sometimes I even remember to go put the phone on mute, awesome. but not I, always. You know what? I'm glad <laughs> we share the same kind of approach. <laughs> uh, good stuff. All right. All right. Well, uh, I'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. All right. Take care, Ben. Okay. Bye bye. Bye. <laughs>